Hello, hello, and welcome to the third episode of this mini-series. I hope you've been enjoying listening to it as much as I've been enjoying making it. If you're a patron, you're listening to the full version of this episode in 2023, but if you're not, you're probably listening to it in 2024. Just saying, you could have been listening a lot sooner. So, yeah, I thought I'd drop a friendly reminder here that specialty miniseries like this one and my other one, Woking Up, take a lot of work, research, prep, scheduling, editing, production, and so on. And these series are only funded by listeners like you. So if you enjoy them and would like to help support, please consider becoming a patron. Premium patrons specifically get first access to this series. So if you can, subscribe to the premium tiers today and get a whole lot more, get it all faster, get exclusives. Anywho, today we'll be talking about Germany. But before we get to that, I thought I'd give a shout out to some of my international listeners. What better place than on this very global series, right? I often don't check the stats for this podcast, but I'm going to try and make more of an effort to do so because it's been very interesting, especially lately. For the first time in the times that I've checked, I've actually seen an audience from another country beat the U.S., Um, among listeners of this show. Like, I've never seen that before. So, for last month, November 2023, the stats were fascinating. In the number one spot, I had Serbia. Big shout out to listeners over there. Keep it up. We love our global listeners. It was definitely very, very cool to see. USA was number two for the first time that I've seen. Come on, guys. How do you, with such a massive population in comparison, get beaten? But, you know, it was only this one time. So let's see if you're back in the number one spot when I check December stats. Um, And in the third spot for last month, I had Egypt, which is also new. I don't think I've seen that before. It's always some variation of America, Canada, UK, you know, which is, of course, wonderful, too. Um, and not unexpected, given that this is a show in English. And we talk about North American politics mostly with the occasional UK topic and figure. But yeah, I love it. I love seeing the diversity in listeners. So hey, Egypt, hello, and thank you so much for listening. At fourth place, we had New Zealand, which I thought was pretty awesome too. Obviously related to the previous Global Far Right episode on New Zealand. You know, it really feels so validating when you're talking about a specific country and they're actually listening to your content. Very, very neat to see. Canada was all the way in seventh place last month. Come on. Wah, wah, wah. I love you guys anyway, Canadian listeners. You know that. But, um... I'm hoping to see Germany make it to the top 10 countries listening to this show after this Germany episode is publicly released. So yeah, fingers crossed. I will keep an eye out for that and uh, let you know next time. There's a lot more to talk about in regards to Germany in the current political climate, which is a broader topic than the far right. So I may be doing a second Germany-related episode in the new year. Let me know if there are any specific Germany-related topics you'd like to hear more about. And now, on to the episode. 
The conditions in the past few years have been a perfect storm for extremism, is a terrorist attack, hate, the transgender community, and conspiracy theories to flourish around the world. Join me as I try to learn more one country at a time. In another Polite Conversations mini-series, this time exploring the global far right. Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of my mini-series on the global far right. Today I'll be speaking with Miro Dietrich, who is a far right researcher from Germany, from the organization CMAS. And uh, yeah, how are you doing? Miro, how's it going? Thank you so much for being here. Hi, it's good to be here. Yeah, there's uh, lots to talk about today. Some interesting things happening in Germany recently that I've been seeing in the news as well. If you want to like plug anything, you can do that right at the beginning of the show, and then you can give me a little background on yourself. Yeah, I'm Mio Dietrich. I'm a researcher of the far right. Uh, I do this for eight years now, focusing on conspiracy narratives and uh, far right internet phenomena. And since 2019, I'm focused on uh, far right terrorism. You can find me on Twitter, but also on Blue Sky. And for much of the things I talk about, we have reports um, on our website, cmas.io. All right, excellent. How did you come into this line of work? I was always really interested in subcultures, um, and especially digital subcultures um, made it able for me to sort of track how new languages formed, how communities are organizing themselves. And I also have been an anti-fascist from the early, from very young, at anti-fascist um, demonstrations when I was 14. Oh, wow. So, so after uh, my study, I sort of realized that um, combining these things actually can be a job as an internship. And from this on, um, my life revolves around um, digital alternative realities of the far right. Oh, that's really, that's such an interesting backstory. I've always been very interested in subcultures, too, myself, growing up, like, uh, as a, I guess, a third culture kid, right, being of Pakistani background, growing up in Saudi Arabia, and not really feeling like I have roots anywhere until I moved to Canada, I guess, made me very, like, intrigued by subcultures, I guess, it's because of that finding of identity aspect of it. And, uh, yeah, so I dabbled in a few, n- no far right subcultures, <laughs> but like, you know, I was really into, uh, the industrial and goth scenes in Toronto and, um, I'm sure you can find far writers there, but, uh, yeah, so that's cool. That's something that we have in common is that interest in subcultures. Yeah. It's always, always interested of me to see sort of how, um, these split communities develop and how their hierarchies form, how the language that only they understand form, how sort of these cultural values spread. Like when memes started, it was definitely something um, that I found highly interesting to sort of see the involvement of ideas on the internet. So um, when we spoke briefly uh, beforehand, you were telling me about your research into QAnon and the kind of role that that's played uh, in Germany. 
and how it had people like glued to the American far right and helped in like disseminating some of the American far right talking points. Yeah, in Germany we have the biggest non-English speaking QAnon movement in the world. Uh, we monitored over six uh, Telegram channels with over a hundred thousand subscribers. And colleagues of mine did a survey in Germany where we found out that asking for typical QAnon narratives, that around 12% of Germans strongly or moderately believe in, in these narratives. And wow. if you only look at the people who are unvaccinated, 46% believe these QAnon narratives. So it had a huge spread in Germany. And it wasn't really an issue before the pandemic. Mm. There were far-right people pushing it. But it didn't really take off um, until the pandemic, where loads of loads of people flocked to the internet and were looking for answers. And QAnon was one of the things that people um, tended to in Germany. It has a lot to do with, um, we already have a big sovereign citizen movement, the Reichsbürger. Mm. And sort of these two movements uh, have some narratives overlap and work quite well together in tackling um, a complicated world. Can you explain uh, for the audience what the sovereign citizen movement is about and what its German version looks like? Sovereign citizen is a collection of different beliefs, uh, but basically they don't think that the states are real. And they have a lot of different explanations for this. In Germany, they're called Reichsbürger, and they don't believe that Germany is a legitimate state. And they're sort of, they think that the laws are before the Third Reich or of the Third Reich are still the laws that are held today. They believe Germany is only a company. And one reason for them is they don't believe we have a peace treaty. They believe Germany is a company? Yeah, so the, the modern uh, Germany for them is only a company oh. because they believe that um, the laws of the Weimar Republic are still sort of the law. And they have a lot of um, very flimsy explanations for this. One is that they think we don't have a peace treaty, so the war is still ongoing. Um, but sort of we had the two plus four contract is a peace treaty. It's just, it doesn't say peace treaty on the top of it. So right. So that's um, why people believe that um, the German state is not legitimate. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that sounds a lot like the American versions that I've been familiar with. Did they also do things like not uh, get driver's licenses and things? or? Yeah, and not pay taxes and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So how did this all come about Like during the pandemic? How? How was the time when there was lockdowns? And I know that in Canada we had those trucker convoys that inspired a bunch of right-wingers around the world. And um, the comparisons to Jews and concentration camps were particularly horrendous. And I, I don't know, did that happen in Germany? Yeah, something similar. And sort of our explanation is that in times of conflict, People um, want easy to understand solutions and um, they would uh, want to make things less complicated. And one of this is having an easy black and white worldview. And the other thing is that people feel out of control. Yeah. And QAnon gave them something to be in control. 
suddenly you're a digital warrior, you're fighting to free uh, children that are being sex slaves. And sort of this was quite attractive for a lot of people. And also, of course, the narratives uh, fit very well with satanic panic memes. Mm -hmm. The year of the underground um, networks where um, ritual sexual abuse was happening. We had the satanic panic in Germany as well. So, um, Like in the 80s or... Yeah, 80s, 90s, so yeah. they can uh, connect to that very well. And, uh, I mean, we're seeing a revival of it here in North America currently with both QAnon and also the anti-trans movement, which people are trying to, well, just like the anti-LGBTQ stuff, they're trying to tie in, right, by calling people groomers and horrendous slurs like that, you know? Is yeah, that- definitely, is that happening there too? Yeah, we have the same panic here as well. The hate against trans people um, with the rise of um, the hate in the US, it also became a major topic in Germany as well. It's amazing how these things um, carry across and how the right is basically like always on the same page around the world. And that's initially why I wanted to do this series, because I thought if we could have it all in a series of episodes just to compare and see like how many similarities there are. It's actually really frightening. And QAnon definitely was a big accelerator in the globalization of the far right. And in Germany, the QAnon people immediately translated everything that was happening in the US QAnon scene, like on the same day. And a lot of the talking points, a lot of the content that was shared in the QAnon spaces in the US was influenced by neo-Nazi far right content. And in Germany, a lot of far-right people were hanging out in QAnon spaces. So via QAnon, and the narratives of the U.S. got imported very quickly to Germany. Mm-hmm. And wasn't QAnon like initially very like U.S. specific, right? Yeah, it sort of doesn't make a lot of sense. Being thinking Q- Trump is the great uh, savior. Yeah, it's sort of when you go back to sovereign citizenship. And they believe we don't have a peace treaty, so America is still occupying Germany. So Trump would be the head of that. Oh, wow. That's sort of one idea. And the other thing that makes QAnon so special uh, when we talk about conspiracy narratives is that for the first time, you're not just a random sitting on the Internet and reading all this bad stuff. And for the first time, someone is in on a good conspiracy so the, uh, when QAnon exploded, the most powerful man in the world, Trump, sort of was part of fighting back against that. So suddenly it wasn't just you writing things on the internet. There was like a, 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 an authority fighting on your side. Uh-huh. I think that made it really um, convincing for Germans, although uh, it was so US-centric. So do you see like um, American flags and MAGA hats and things in Germany as well amongst those groups? During the height of the pandemic, definitely um, we had uh, some MAGA merch at the far-right rallies here. Oh, wow. And also the narratives got translated and didn't make any sense to um, stolen election narrative. We always had talks about our election not being right, not right. But it never picked up. But um, during the last big election, we had a lot of stolen election narratives. It doesn't make sense at all in Germany, especially because people talked about um, voting machines being rigged. 
And in Germany, we don't have voting machines. It's counted by hand. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I, I shouldn't laugh, but, like, it's so wild that they're even importing narratives that don't fit at all. Yeah. And you mentioned when we spoke before that about six months before the attack on the Capitol in the U.S. on January 6th, you had your own storming of the parliament in Germany, kind of? Yeah, six, six months earlier, a group of um, conspiracy-driven QAnon far-right people uh, congregated uh, in front of uh, our parliament for another demonstration, and then they um, tried to storm the building. No one was killed. They only reached the top of the steps. Um, of course, in the U.S., everything has to be bigger, so yeah. the storming of the U.S. Capitol was worse. But sort of here you see how QAnon influenced the whole thing. It was uh, during the height of the election campaign of Donald Trump. But the moment that led to the storming was the QAnon believers uh, going on on stage of the demonstration there and proclaiming that Donald Trump just landed in Berlin. And now we have to now they have to show him the support. What? So that was like that was related to Trumpism, too. Yeah, that sort of was, and uh, now he's, uh, Trump landed, landed in Germany, he's here to free us, so we have to storm the capital. And he had not landed in Germany. Of course, it was during the height of his election campaign, so uh, I think he had better to, the things to do. <laughs> and what happens when they're confronted with these, like, obvious facts that, look, he, he did not land in Berlin, so what happens after that? The obvious thing that often happens during these uh, people who are responsible are being um, declared as state actors, um, so they are not them. And in on the next day, it doesn't really matter what happened. So actually. they just like change the narrative or just forget about it. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, yeah. I mean, you see that on the right a lot too. Like, there's no desire for consistency. There's no desire to not be a hypocrite. There's no, it's just whatever. Anything goes, it seems. Yeah. Uh, uh, reality uh, has not the biggest influence on the beliefs of these people. <laughs> and um, you're having the wokeness and cancel culture discourse. And uh, what about, like, you know, the college campus hysteria? All the things uh, you know from the U.S. we have as well. It's often with a time delay, um, and you've, if you already followed sort of the discourse in the U.S., it's even more uh, tiring to see the same things discussed here. Yeah, same sorts of debates. Yeah, it's about wokeness that no one can define. So it's about free speech that no one can define what it means, um, and it's usually just the free speech to say uh, vicious things, to insult people, to use slurs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when it comes to freedom of speech they don't like, they don't really talk about it. And of and course, campus immediately censor anything they don't like. Like just look at uh, Elon Musk. Yeah. Right, he's now going after people talking about decolonization on Twitter. Yeah, they they don't care about freedom of speech. Yeah, yeah, that's another you know blatant contradiction that they don't seem to care about at all. No, and um, you had talked about the fact that there was some 
Christchurch shooter influences and idealizing of him. Yeah. When we look at terrorism in Germany, uh, the biggest turn was um, between 2000 and 2007, uh, terrorist group, the National Socialist Underground, murdered nine migrants and a police officer and robbed 15 banks. <gasps> and during that time, the murders were not connected to the far right. Contrary, and the press and police were investigating migrants. Uh-huh. In the press, they were called kebab murders. Oh, really? Only when two of the three people burned their camper and the third person burned their home and sent out confession letters, it was uncovered that it was these murders that the police thought maybe the Turkish mafia was responsible for it. It was actually done by a foreign terrorist. Wow. And they just were like openly calling it like kebab murders, like in the press, in the mainstream press? Yes. It was quite a racist discourse. Um, Neighbors, family members were investigated for being responsible. Um, But when we had uh, the trial and uh, civil investigations around the case, we found out that actually the domestic intelligence service was quite involved in supporting uh, these attacks in ways because they um, paid a lot of informants of the far right and these people used this money for foreign activities, but didn't inform our uh, domestic intelligence service about what was happening. Oh. Uh, so um, that's quite a complicated role. That, so what uh, are they getting paid for then? Yeah, that was the big question. They, they used the money to um, have far-right publications um, and do far-right activities. So our domestic intelligence service financed the far-right scene for years. Wow. And there was a terrorist group um, that murdered people for years. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't hear about it. This was sort of the big turn in Germany. Uh, we've seen that um, far-right terrorist groups can be quite active and that our security agencies are not up for the task. But the case you were talking about earlier, the Christchurch connection was uh, in 2019, After the Christchurch shooting, a wave of terrorism um, happened around the world. So we had a copycat in El Paso and in Poway, and also one tried to do an attack in Oslo. But we also had an attack in in Halle in Germany. A militant accelerationist, a fan of the Christchurch shooter, uh, he also live-streamed his attack on a synagogue. He wasn't able to get in, so he shot two random bystanders. But he was one of the people um, the Telegram network would call saints. Call a saint? That's sort of in the Telegram uh, community. Uh, so the part of Telegram that's focused on foreign terrorism, um, they call uh, successful um, shooters saints. And they paint mur- murals and they sort of glorify them. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, like... You'd think in Germany they would be very cautious and careful around the far right, but... Yeah, uh, that's not the only thing that's happened on terrorism in Germany. In 2019, a conservative politician was shot in his backyard by a neo-Nazi because the politician um, had pro-refugee statements. 
Um, and we had a terrorist attack in Hanau in 2020 where nine migrants were killed in a hookah bar. And, and later the shooter killed his mother. And he believed in a lot of racist conspiracies. Wow. Do you see references to any of these, like, North American figures? So the Halle shooter, um, during his live stream, he spoke in English. And he addressed an international audience. And the Hanau shooter also published um, a video in English addressing the international audience. Wow. Wow, that's wild. And that's sort of the um, attacks that actually happened. Uh, we have a lot of other terrorist activities in Germany. It's sort of my main focus of my work. And we have a Atomwaffen Division Germany chapter in 2018. And in 2020, a member of Feuerkrieg Division was arrested, a 22-year-old, because he was planning an, an attack. He got sentenced to two years. Um, in 2021, uh, someone tried to found Atomwaffen Division Hesse, uh, a 19-year-old. Uh, he got three years and 10 months. In 2022, someone in Essen, um, a 17-year-old, tried to do a terrorist attack on his school. He was a Christchurch fan, and um, he got two years of probation. 2022... Um, someone who founded the group Totenwaffen was arrested and he was only 16 years old when he tried to do an attack. Oh my god. And the trial is still ongoing. So what are the main like influences of like how are these guys getting radicalized mainly? These recent cases like the recent one in 2023 a 13-year-old um, wrote about uh, committing a terrorist offense and uh, trying to uh, create explosives. These are all uh, part of what we call militant accelerationism. It's um, a split of the far right. Who, the far right people who were unhappy about how the far right were doing things uh, like metapolitics or trying to mainstream their ideas. Um, decided that now it's time to do terrorist offenses because and they don't believe that um, the system can be changed. They think the system that we're living in is heading for downfall anyway. So they try to accelerate the downfall. Right, so because of like diversity and things. Yeah, um, they would call it degeneracy and Jewish uh, world conspiracies right. and the great placement, white genocide. And sort of because of these ideas, but they don't believe like the far right used to that they have to gain political power or they have to change the culture. They think the only way for their fascist state is to try to start a civil or a race war, and they do these attacks with the with the idea to start this war and have a fascistic um, government in the end. And are there any like serious uh, large scale attempts to? de-radicalize such people or prevent such attacks or sadly the German security agencies were quite slow to adapt to this new threat but now they are interested now when, when you say new threat you just mean specifically the militant accelerationists yeah that's sort of the the greatest threat of terrorism at the moment i'd say in germany okay um, but the big problem is, I listed it off, and they're like 17, 19, 13, 16 years old. And I spend time in these chat rooms. It's quite um, hard to see. They complain about their teachers and how much they hate homework. 
and then they order explosive material um, at the combine of Amazon and try to kill migrants. <gasps> sort of the question, what's the starting point of this radicalization when you're like 14 year old and you're already at the end of radicalization? That's still unknown. Yeah, like, is there any, um, I don't know, are these kids from a specific kind of situation where they're not getting attention at home, or...? Yeah, usually the combined factor is they're all male, and they're um, people who don't have a good social system around them, so they're quite lonely and spend time on the internet. Hmm. And also these far-right groups um, can give them purpose-building narratives. And I don't think we really have a lot of attractive purpose-building narratives in our society. But now they think they are like crusaders. Right. Should have Halle had a longsword in his car. He thought of himself as uh, a crusader to save the white race. And I think for... Oh. These people who don't have anything that's quite attractive and the chance to be a saint for their community. Right. It's kind of like the same um, type of radicalization that, you know, I hear about in Islamic communities. Like, same same kind of thing with jihadism, right? Yeah. The, the two, after doing this for eight years, I think the two main topics, why people get in these groups and why especially they stay in these groups, are community and purpose-building narratives. And I think um, if we want to tackle the problem, we have to do more than reduce uh, the supply. And so uh, deplatforming these people and uh, putting them in jail, we have to think more about how can, how can we decrease the demand? How are 14-year-olds interested to die, to kill people for far-right ideology? And I think that's a way more complicated question than restricting the internet or giving more things for the police to do. Right. I mean, is the government trying to tackle these questions in any serious, major way? Sadly, not really, I'd say. A lot of uh, funding for political um, education got cut. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, one thing you always hear about in regards to Germany is that it's one country that doesn't shy away from its, uh, you know, the horrors of its own past, and that they teach about the Holocaust pretty openly in their schools. And you would think that an education about radicalization generally would be a part of that, because of the kinds of ideas? Yeah, one would hope. But I think a lot of the remembrance is more um, to put the past behind us and not really to tackle um, um, what's happening today. Right, right. But they, but you did learn about it, like, in detail uh, in school? Yeah, we, we have it in a school program. But uh, we have surveys of young people and older people, uh, how much they do know about the Holocaust, and the numbers aren't that great. So it's not that effective. Really? How is that possible, if they, if they teach it in school? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so I grew up in Saudi Arabia. I went to a British school, um, and, you know, the British, at least for me, were not teaching anything about the horrors of their own past, right? Like, nothing to do with 
colonization or um, the British rule in India and the horrors related to that absolutely skipped over. And when we learned about World War II, I don't know if this was a decision that was made because it was being taught in Saudi Arabia, but we certainly didn't, didn't learn about the Holocaust at all. Like there was a brief mention of Hitler, but no details. But sort of the way it's um, discussed in German families, it's usually um, your grandfather, um, he was in the resistance or he didn't know anything. Um, and sort of this is the belief that most people have that there was this bad guy, Hitler, and he convinced people or he tricked people into his world belief. But actually no German uh, believed in all this. And of course, nobody actually took part of this. Um, and it's sort of the way uh, it's seen in Germany a lot. So it is still like that same kind of revisionism. It's not fully talked about as openly as we hear that it's talked about. Yeah. That's unfortunate. But um, you would think that with the with the kind of past, uh, there would be special, special care about uh, far-right radicalization and great replacement and anti-Semitism and things like that. But it seems like there's uh, more crackdowns on, like, left-wing people going to literature festivals and talking about decolonization. At least that's what I'm seeing in the news lately. Yeah, so they definitely, this, our security agencies definitely stepped up, um, sort of catching these people. We have two QAnon sovereign citizen group who try to overthrow our government, and we see more arrests in the militant accelerationist um, sphere. But it's it took them a really long time to understand that the internet is a real place, mm -hmm. that radicalization is happening there. And it's not just a, uh, something you can turn off. Um, the differentiating, differentiation between the real world and online sort of, um, I think, led people astray. Mm -hmm. And um, other themes of like the... I know in like, I guess, 2016, 2015, and a little bit before that too, the themes of... Uh, a fear of Islamization was, like, big on the internet. It was big in New Atheist circles. It was talked about uh, in in North America, in the UK. And uh, Sam Harris was saying some nonsense, like, maybe a decade ago, that France was going to be... I forget the uh, exact figures, but it was something ridiculous, like... In, 50, in 25 years, France is going to be, I don't know, majority Muslim or 25% Muslim. I can't remember what he said exactly, but it was very silly. And now it's been, I think, 15 years since he said that, and France is nowhere near, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, it terrifies me looking back that these people considered, like, such serious intellectuals are essentially peddling far-right, great replacement stuff, and uh, it's being absorbed by people that wouldn't necessarily take it from a far-right source. Yeah, the, we saw this in Germany as well. The uh, topic about uh, migration and asylum was something that propelled the far-right into the main light in 2015-2016, when we saw a lot of refugees um, out of the Syrian war. 
And um, in Germany, um, the biggest group using these narratives was called Pegida, mm. Patriots Europeans Against the Islamization of the West. And they were very quick to organize demonstrations via Facebook, Facebook uh, events where people turned up. And this um, led to a rise of right-wing extremism in Germany. This was their main topic. And this was also the topic that um, radicalized and um, gave a lot of new voters to the far-right party, the alternative for Germany, AFD in Germany. Right. And uh, I, I remember Pegida because Tommy Robinson and uh, Anne-Marie Waters, who are like figures from the UK, I think they were, they had, they had started like a UK chapter or something. Yeah. I don't hear about it much anymore, but um, it was a big thing. Tommy Robinson was friends with um, the guy who uh, started these marches here. And wasn't he a guy who also, if I'm not mistaken, had like photos taken of him dressed as Hitler or something that were leaked in a paper? Yeah. Yeah. But of course, it has nothing to do with the far right. No, they were quite obviously far right people. And of course, the rhetoric had consequences. And in 2016, we had uh, the worst year on refugee at homes being attacked at over 1,500. Wow. And um, after 2016, the numbers declined year over year. But actually, this year is the first year where these numbers rise again. Yeah, I was just going to say that it looks like it's all happening again. And you can see that kind of rhetoric returning online and that kind of hate. And it's pretty terrifying times. Yeah, and sort of um, Pegida did their first demonstration after a long while. And their argumentation now is that the pro-Palestine demonstrations on the street are a sign of Islamization. So they were always right. And sort of they use this conflict right now to um, mobilize people. Yeah. And, you know, I'm noticing a lot of uh, the rights grievances are coming together in in this um, anti-Palestinian cause, right? Because they're trying to drag trans people into it. They're trying to drag uh, all LGBTQ people into it by saying, oh, Queers for Palestine is so ridiculous, you know? They're um, trying to bring the left into it, accusing college professors of being Hamas supporters, accusing, you know, just regular left-ish. I wouldn't even call it too left, but like mainstream media in, in North America is being accused of having people embedded with Hamas. There have been stickers on a Canadian university that said, like, I love Hamas. And, you know, it's got the handle of a left-wing student group underneath it who have denied that those stickers have, have anything to do with them. So obviously somebody else is putting those stickers and blaming them. And, uh, all their grievances are just fitting nicely into this one issue, right? It's the Muslims, the gays, the campus, and the left-wing students. In Germany, the far right is pretty split on the, this question of this current conflict. It depends a lot on are you more a racist or are you more an anti-Semite? Right, right. The anti-Semites are, of course, against Israel, and the racists um, are, of course, happy that uh, brown people are getting killed. And in general, the German far right is more 
they try to use it at the demonstrations to f stoke fear of um, Muslim people. Um, but in general, their their talking point is more that's not our conflict. We shouldn't take a side in this. We shouldn't support either side. This has nothing to do with us. Oh, really? I have not heard that one before from the far right, but they usually like to get involved in everything and use it to their advantage, but that's different. Yeah, like I said, the um, Muslims are taking over narratives. That's sort of the way they try to reframe uh, the... Yeah. And of course, we see anti-Semitism in Germany on the rise. So we have a lot of attacks on Jews and synagogues. Yeah. We had anti-Semitic marches. Um, people who always were happy to use the word um, Zionism instead of Jews now find themselves uh, with a lot of friends. So the anti-Semitism, they turned uh, there. Right. But then there's also the issue of it being deliberately conflated by people who s literally want no criticism of the government of Israel, and they're calling all of that anti-Semitism, right? Of course, this also happens. So I was just watching a clip from former uh, U.S. ambassador to Israel on Al Jazeera, he was telling the reporter that it's been it's been without a doubt proven that the Hamas command center is under Al Shifa Hospital, and I don't believe that it has been proven at all. And when the guy started questioning him, he said, "Oh, you're doing Holocaust denial because you're saying the evidence that Israel presents is not valid." And like that is such a dangerous place to get into because you are just muddying the waters of what is and isn't anti-Semitism. And, of course, genuine anti-Semites will be thrilled by that because no one will be taking, you know, the word anti-Semitism as seriously as they did before if you're using it for, like, criticism of Israel or criticism of the IDF. Yeah, but actually, I also heard a lot of people saying, oh, you can't criticize Israel, you would be called an anti-Semite. And when you look at their criticism, it, um, it's... Turns out to be anti-Semitic. Yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of really bizarre stuff. Like if you if you look at Candace Owens, right? She is hundred percent genuinely anti-Semitic. I mean, she's been up on stage like minimizing Hitler, literally, and now she's trying to pose as a um, reasonable critic of Israel who simply doesn't want the slaughter of innocent Palestinian civilians. Yeah. Which also brings me to the talking point of um, there's an effort right now by the right and uh, people who are, you know, pro-Israel to actually minimize Nazis and Nazi death camps, which is the most absurd thing to witness. Yeah, we've seen this in Germany as well. And it's so bizarre that you're seeing it in Germany of all places. Like, of all places, you'd think that a German would be conscious of not minimizing Nazis. Yeah, that's really sad to see. Like I said, we have it in our schools, uh, we have it in our curriculum, but um, people still have this narrative that at least um, the Germans uh, hid their atrocities. Yeah, but they hid them because they didn't want to get caught and punished for the crimes not because they genuinely felt sad 
and they documented them quite well and were quite happy about the atrocities that they were doing so right and from what i've read they had like celebration rituals as well it's not like they were going home and sobbing and crying about what they did you're definitely not gonna have to hand it to the waffenessers <laughs> exactly definitely don't hand it to the nazis like ever douglas murray i saw in um now i hope i'm pronouncing this right is it der spiegel yeah der spiegel so they had an article about greta thunberg and uh, a poll quote in the bottom of that article is like we're seeing anti-semitism like never before Now, I understand that, you know, anti-Semitism is definitely on the rise. That is very concerning, and it's a serious, serious issue. But for a German magazine or publication to have that quote, um, it's very strange, don't you think? It was probably meant in recent times. No, no, I know, but, like, that's not what they said, right? Um so the discourse around this conflict is, is is quite strange and bizarre at times. Yeah, disinformation. Twitter is not a usable platform anymore. No, yeah, not at all. It's hard to tell what is true and what isn't. And even if like a mainstream publication has published it, sometimes they will walk it back. And so it's hard to say. And having the option of earning money to uh, publish things that are emotionally catch people and have an erection is maybe not the best thing for an information ecosystem. Absolutely the worst thing. But I don't think uh, Elon Musk cares about that, right? No. I just can't wait till uh, he simply can't hold on to Twitter anymore. That's That's what I'm hoping for. Like, at some point, he's got to not be able to afford it and let it go. It's not good that um, the owner of this huge platform thinks that Jewish groups um, have anti-white biases um, and trying to attack white people. It's so alarming that someone with that much power and money and influence would be sharing such naked, such blatant anti-Semitism that has been used by people in that have done synagogue shootings, like those kinds of theories. Yeah. And again, more of the bizarreness is that the ADL praised him like a day after that. That's also something that I don't understand because the ADL did a lot of good work and they're still doing a lot of good work and they have a lot of good people working for them. Uh, it's sad that the leadership um, well, they've demolished their good. Basically tanked their credibility, you know, like I don't know how I can take them seriously anymore because if you're going to praise Elon Musk a day after he... Um, shares that kind of or legitimizes that kind of anti-Semitism for simply saying that uh, he's going to ban uh, phrases like from the river to the sea and decolonization. It just makes it just makes no sense. I mean, it makes as little sense as like anti-Semites being invited to pro-Israel rallies, right? Yeah, But I think that is one thing that shows the difference between people who generally want to criticize Israel or side with Israel, that that is not necessarily 
connected to Jews. You can have them independently. You can even have anti-Semites supporting Israel. Yeah, especially the Christian right uh, have a lot of alternative uh, motive for supporting Israel. Exactly, exactly. But, um, yeah, let's see. You mentioned something about... About the AFD? Yeah, let's talk about that. You said that there were some state elections in early October. So the AFD started as a EU critic party, but radicalized over the years, especially in East Germany. And um, in, in GDR, um, in the Eastern Republic, um, it's sort of, people often don't understand why we have a lot of problem with neo-Nazis in the East of Germany. And during the time of the GDR, um, the problem was ignored. Um, I mean, the wall was called the anti-fascist protection wall. They thought of sort um, neo-Nazism as a problem of the West and not um, here. Mm -hmm. So neo-Nazis could spread at the time. And after the reunification, um, the East was plundered by the West. Mm -hmm. There were no activities to do. There was a lot of poverty and less overwatch. So a lot of neo-Nazis um, went there and established themselves. They also have a, a big victim narrative there. They think they were victims of the Nazis, like I said earlier, and we were... Wait, so the well. Nazis think they were victims of the Nazis? Yeah, the far-right people think that um, one time the Nazis uh, took over and made everything worse, then the communists take, took over and made everything worse, and now West Germany um, is making everything worse. And that's sort of what brings them in this victim mentality to support far-right ideologies. Mm -hmm. And with the rise of the so-called refugee crisis, the AFD took over. And they are watched by our domestic intelligence services at different states to different levels. So, But they're not uh, declared um, the hardest step that they can be um, watched um, all over the place, or everywhere in Germany. So they don't think that the whole party as a whole is a far-right party, only that several parts of them are a far-right party. Oh. But that's sort of, we see this radicalization and that's something that we expect, that it will be called um, conclusively a far-right party by our domestic intelligence service, which will lead to um, different means of observation against the party. Do you find the same like dynamic of there being a lot of far right sympathizers in like the police and domestic intelligence or maybe not openly yeah. but we definitely have the problem that a lot of um, police chats were discovered where they're making jokes about um, guessing Jews. <sighs> and a lot of the um, terrorist plots involve former or current members of uh, military branches or former police officers. And we have some harassment campaigns where private addresses were pulled over a police computer and later these people were targeted by neo-Nazis. So we definitely have this problem in Germany as well. Mm. I think that's a worldwide thing. Yeah, that's so scary. And for the longest time, the AFD was especially a problem in the East, but not so much in the West. But over a while now, they have very high polling numbers, uh, like 22%, where they used to be like 11%. Oh, wow. 
And um, we had two elections uh, this October in the West, in Hesse and Bavaria, and they got 18 and 14.6 percent. These are numbers we wouldn't have expected a far-right party like this to ever take in Germany. And in a stronghold in Thuringer, they right now are the strongest party with 34 percent. So it's quite um, concerning to see that a party that's openly far-right, that has um, far-right people quite explicitly with a far-right ideology, was able to garner as much votes in Germany again. And sadly, um, they have their topic around migration and asylum, and the politicians of the other democratic parties fall into the trap to think that they have to get these voters back but also starting to hardline on these questions. Right, so you're saying like mainstream left-ish parties are engaging with those narratives? The conservative party, but also the social party, um, talk about restricting laws and talking about more deputations um, to sort of try to win these people back. But we've seen time and time again that um, this will only help the far right because people will vote for the original yeah. and are not persuaded by these talking points, but it will help cement this topic as an actual issue, yeah. while in contrast, uh, migration and asylum is not a high-level uh, issue in Germany at all. Right. So across the political spectrum, then, you're seeing people yeah. legitimize that narrative. Yeah. That's very worrying. So what is it that your organization does? We monitor, analyze, and publish reports on the far right, on disinformation and on conspiracy narratives. Um, we are often expert for the press. We advise politicians. And I also often talk with police um, and security agencies about the terrorist threat that we have right now. Oh, okay. And so do you find that they act on your advice or they absorb it? Well, or... We are a small organization, but we definitely see some changes. But of course, with all this work, um, you have to keep pushing in a direction and hope that something changes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good work, and I'm glad that you're you're doing it. I'll definitely um, plug your organization in the show notes, and people can check it out. One thing I did want to ask you is, are there like two distinct strands of the far right in Germany? I know you mentioned briefly before that the far right is split on certain issues where whether you're more racist or more anti-Semitic, you know, you'll choose a different side, say, in this current conflict. Um, but is there like an ongoing theme of like parallel kind of strands of the far right, one that is more anti-Muslim and one that is more anti-Semitic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the far right in Germany is split into many different groups on many different questions. Um, it's not a monolithic thing. I think it's nowhere the case that the far right is monolithic. Mm-hmm. On the question of Russia, the majority of far-right people are um, supportive of Russia and this aggression of war. But if you go to the violent part of the far-right, some people have connection to far-right activities in Ukraine, to the Azov Battalion. Mm. There's a split line. There's a split line between anti-Semitism and racism, as we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely sort of an age split. The younger people um, being more chronically online, more leading on the violent part into militant accelerationism. 
while the older people are also very online but in different groups. They are more the QAnon and sovereign citizen people who try to do violent attacks. Wow, it's really interesting to see where those lines show up, but obviously frightening as well. And most horrifying thing I think you told me today was uh, about the 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds trying to buy explosives. It's just, it's so sad to think about someone so young being so full of hate already. And willing to kill for your ideology or be killed, it's quite concerning. At that age, especially. Like, you know, they should just be like, I don't know, enjoying life, going watching movies, not thinking about killing people. Yeah. It's very sad. Um, but yeah, I do wish that the government would take these things more seriously. And uh, I don't know, like have some kind of prevention program, something to inoculate these young minds against these types of views with, you know? Yeah. I'm doing this for eight years, and I always feel like a firefighter. I talk about the current crisis, and but I only have influence on uh, reducing the supply of the problem, like I said earlier. Yeah. And we really, as a society, we need new answers. We need to find new ways. How can we create communities for people? And how can we offer purpose-building narratives? Yeah. Because um, I mean, we've seen it in the pandemic. The only thing we could do was work. But a lot of these people don't have access to fulfillment work. And um, fulfillment work is not that meaningful for most people. Mm -hmm. I think we as a society need, need new goals. We need new narratives um, and new communities to fight us. Because otherwise... We can arrest these people, we can deplatform them, but there will always be new people. Exactly, exactly. I mean, these ideas, they just pass from person to person, right? It's not like you're permanently squashing it out if you've arrested one person. As long as the demand is there, there will always be yeah. people find themselves. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Miro. That was very uh, enlightening and uh, frightening. <laughs> it was a pleasure. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this mini-series on the global far right. And thank you for supporting the show. It's because of listeners like you that I can continue to produce specialized content like this. Do get in touch if you think you or someone you know would be a good guest for the series. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com No Ian Mangoes. There are still a lot of countries I'm looking to cover. 